Welcome to From Russia with Blood, your source of gruesome, highly disturbing, and unbelievable but true crime stories from behind the Soviet curtain. Join our investigation as we go into the shadows to cast light on the nightmarish darkness of the Soviet past, if you dare. The episode you are about to hear contains material of an explicit sexual and criminal nature that some listeners may find extremely disturbing. This podcast is not suitable for minors. Please proceed at your own discretion. On the morning of December 20th, 1963, Volodya Teplov, a Moscow schoolboy, was getting ready for his lessons that afternoon. In those days, there were too many school children and only a limited amount of classroom capacity in the schools. So children had to study in shifts, and Volodya's was the second shift. Volodya's old grandmother and his baby brother were in the far room of their apartment when there suddenly came a ring at the door. Volodya opened the door to find a man on the landing. The man said he was from Moscaz, the Moscow Gas Works, checking for a gas leak reported by some of the neighbors. The man went into the apartment, played with the knobs on the gas stove, and asked the boy if anyone else was in. Volodya was a young pioneer, Imagine a kind of Boy Scout equivalent if the youth activities were organized under the direction of the Communist Party. And pioneers were taught never to tell lies. Yet this time, Volodya did lie and said, Yes, we are all in. This lie saved his life. The visitor's name was Vladimir Ionesian. An ethnic Armenian, he had been born in Tbilisi, the capital city of the Georgian Soviet Socialist Republic, on August 27, 1937. For reasons we shall discuss later, Vladimir's early years are obscured by conflicting facts, but we do know for certain that his parents definitely care for their son that they tried to develop his singing skills, and that he even went to study full-time at a music school. And as thorough and intrusive as the Soviet bureaucracy could be, it is at this point that accounts of Vladimir's life differ. According to one version, Vladimir's father had been arrested while Vladimir was still at school accused of violating the norms of Soviet trade, and sentenced to seven years. There are those who hold that it was this event that caused Vladimir to try and follow in his dad's footsteps. Right after leaving school, at the age of 17, he was caught by police, accused of theft, 
and received a five-year suspended sentence. After being charged, though, Vladimir did go to study in a conservatory. Records do show that in 1959, Vladimir received his draft notice. Here we are also certain of two things. One, he was convinced that three years in the army were going to ruin his vocal talent. And two, he did not want to wear the green uniform. It is after Vladimir got his draft papers that the facts again become rather difficult to accurately verify. If we are to believe the available interrogation transcripts, Vladimir underwent an examination in Tbilisi Hospital No. 1 and was pronounced unfit for service on the basis of a nervous condition. Yet when he brought the results of his medical evaluation to the conscription office, someone took the documents from him and destroyed them. Vladimir refused to join the army and was accused of evading military service, which resulted in two and a half years in a corrective labor colony. So the other version of Vladimir's biography relates that there was no five-year suspended sentence for theft, and that Vladimir's first sentence was indeed for evading the military service, and it was during this time that his father was sent to jail. Either way, he was sent to a corrective labor camp near Gori, a beautiful town in eastern Georgia. Gori is known, amongst other things, as the birthplace of Joseph Stalin. Vladimir was an exemplary convict. He was even promoted to be the Kulturg in charge of planning and running all the camp's cultural activities, from setting up theatrical performances to arranging lectures and designing all the necessary promotional materials. He was also allowed short leaves into town. During one such leave, Vladimir decided that he had had enough of labor camp, got on a bus, and went home. He was caught, brought back, and the remaining year of his until then relatively pleasant term behind barbed wire was changed into a year of forced labor. Vladimir was eventually released, but he still had to do his military service. Again, he went to the hospital to be examined by neurologist, this time sent there by the conscription office, and finally was pronounced unfit for service. After he settled down in Tbilisi, he got married to a girl who had just finished the conservatory. Her name was Medea. Soon, a son was born, yet Vladimir just could not find his place in life. He was unable to get a job that would provide for his family and decided to try his hand at theft again. And again he was caught and received only a five-year suspended sentence mainly because of the tears of his wife in the courtroom. 
After the trial, Medea made Vladimir take the family and leave Tbilisi in order to get far away from his friends and to avoid their bad influence. The family went to the town of Orenburg, one of the biggest towns in the southern Urals region. There he found a job in the Orenburg Musical Comedy Theater as a tenor soloist, or, as other sources claim, an accompanist. Life in Orenburg became normal and quiet for Vladimir until a family of new neighbors arrived, a painter with his wife, who brought along a 21-year-old friend. The friend's name was Alevtina Dmitrieva, and she was an aspiring ballet dancer. She went to work at the same theater where Vladimir was working, and soon the two of them started a romantic relationship. Unfortunately, Alevtina proved a very poor dancer and was fired. This came as a terrible shock to her, and Vladimir decided to help. Without so much as giving his employer notice and thus breaking the labor code, he left work, left his wife and son, and took Alevtina away to Ivanova, a town some 150 miles northeast of Moscow. According to Vladimir, he had a friend there who would be able to arrange a job for Alevtina. Ivanova is a center of the textile industry and, because of the predominance of female laborers in the textile mills, it is commonly referred to as a town of brides. Despite their affair, Alevtina was not too eager to go with him, so Vladimir invented a phony identity. He said he was a KGB officer. He also said in time his connections would make it possible to make Alevtina the prima ballerina of the Bolshoi Theater in Moscow. Who could refuse such an offer? Well, it did not work out for them in Ivanova, so Vladimir decided that they should move to Moscow. This time, he told his muse that his uncle had died in Germany and left him a substantial inheritance. They came to Moscow, met an old woman at the railway station, and there and then rented an apartment from her. However, no theater had a vacancy for Alevtina. Money was running low, and Vladimir decided to bring home the proverbial bacon. He told Alevtina that he had been promoted in his KGB service, and from now on he would have to often leave her alone due to his special business trips. In fact, he went to Dietsky Mir Children's Store and there, in the hiking section, bought himself a small camping hatchet. Vladimir Ionis Yan was now on his way towards becoming the first Soviet serial killer, and this makes talking about him both easy and extremely hard. His killings were professionally, quickly, and efficiently investigated. 
The top brass of the country monitored the case and drove the prosecution. And yet the political pressure was so strong that other aspects of Vladimir's life remain uncovered. Let's talk about what is well known first. On December 20th, 1963, having left young Volodya's apartment, Vladimir went up the stairs, looked into the gas meters in several apartments, and eventually found what he was looking for. In apartment number 95 on the third floor, Vladimir brutally murdered 12-year-old Kostya Sobolyev, hitting him numerous times with a hatchet. Vladimir, later to become known as the infamous serial killer Moskaz, had made little Kostya his first victim. And Vladimir's haul was the boy's sweater, a bottle of Shepra men's cologne, and 60 rubles in cash. 60 rubles in those days was about the minimum monthly wages of a freshly graduated engineer. The brutal murder brought about an immediate response. During the subsequent door-to-door, the police promptly found a star witness, the very same and extremely fortunate Volodya Tiplov. Not only did he see the suspect, talk to the suspect, and could describe the suspect, but he also pointed out that the stranger had touched the knobs on the gas stove without gloves. Thus, from the very beginning, the police had a set of clear fingerprints, albeit not matching any previously contained in their files. Using Volodya's description, they also created a sketch of the suspect. An outstanding criminologist, Sofia Feinstein, created the sketch with the help of two heavy hitters. The well-known sculptor and anthropologist Mikhail Gerasimov and the painter Naum Karpovsky. Volodya also noticed another important detail. In winter, most men wore ushankas, fur hats with ear flaps. Now, people in Moscow wore the hats with the ear flaps tied on top of the hat. The visitor had his ear flaps tied behind the back of his head. This led the police to believe that the suspect was not from Moscow. Other than that, the police did not have any more clues. And it wasn't long before Vladimir made another move. Together with Aleftina, he went back to Ivanova, where, on December 25th, he went hunting once again. He kept using the same scheme that had proved effective in Moscow, ringing the bell and telling whoever was inside that he was an inspector from the city gasworks. He would then check out the apartment, and if what he saw was to his liking, and there was nobody who could offer any resistance, he would strike. Thus, on Kalinin Street, 
Vladimir used his Detsky Mir hatchet to kill 12-year-old Misha Kuleshov and took a man's jacket, a cardigan, two cheap ballpoint pens, and several government bonds. Although these bonds may sound like solid loot, in fact, it took them dozens of years to mature, and they were worth hardly more than the paper they were printed on. The Soviet state made its citizens purchase such bonds, often replacing the better part of their wages with them, in order to get more money into the state budget. Having left that house, he moved on to October Street, where he killed a 74-year-old woman and stole a pocket flashlight and 70, repeat, 70 kopecks, the kind of worthless change that lingers untouched for weeks, even in a pensioner's room. Vladimir then returned to Kalinin Street and started checking out other apartments. One door was opened by a 15-year-old girl, Galia Petropavlovskaya. Vladimir entered the residence, raped Galia, then hit her with his hatchet on the head nine times. Leaving her for dead, he took a sweater, a cardigan, a goose-down shawl, and 90 rubles. The girl, despite her wounds, not only survived but was able to describe the attacker quite well. Now the police were sure they were dealing with a criminal whose actions were unique in the history of Soviet criminology. A manhunt was mounted on the railway and the bus stations of Ivanova. Yet Vladimir and Alatina escaped. They walked six miles out of town and only then caught a bus to Moscow. After the events in Ivanova, the case became extremely high profile. In fact, the interior minister, then called Minister for Public Order, personally oversaw the investigation. So did Alexei Kosygin, the deputy prime minister. Reports on the investigation were taken as high as Nikita Khrushchev himself, then the leader of the Soviet Union, and the same instigator of the Cuban Missile Crisis, who, back in 1962, finally had enough sense at the very last moment to back down and remove Soviet missiles from Cuba. On December 28th, Vladimir killed his fourth victim, this time back in Moscow in an apartment block on Leningrad Avenue he murdered 11-year-old Alex Lisovets. After the first hatchet blow, the boy tried to run away and lock himself in the bathroom, but Vladimir came after him, forced the door open, and murdered him. This time he took nothing from the apartment. Vladimir was unable to break down a locked door to the room where the family kept valuables. A profile of violence and ineptitude now characterized the killer who would later be known as Moskaz. In the next episode, 
we will conclude the grim tale of Mosgaz and reflect on its return from the grave in the 2010s. You have been listening to an episode of From Russia with Blood. It has been carefully researched and produced for you by the Hamovniki brothers. No matter how you found us or what interests brought you here, we're grateful to you for giving us your time. And please keep listening. From Russia with Blood is entirely listener-supported. Go to coffee.com forward slash FWRB, that's ko-fi.com forward slash FWRB for more information. Contributors get exclusive access to episode scripts and extras, including Hamovniki Zastalon, informal reflections, conversations, and insights into the culture of the times. You can follow From Russia with Blood on your preferred podcast platform for more unbelievably gruesome and previously unknown stories of true crime from behind the Soviet curtain.